report it now. Um, Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to the end of the chapter. Hear now the word of God. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those of Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope of the grace and power of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the hope that is founded in your wisdom and given to us in understanding by your Holy Spirit. Help us now, Father, to gaze upon this word, to be in awe, not in resentment of the proclamation of the gospel, but that we would be encouraged by the power of Jesus Christ and that we would find our rest and peace in him. May it be so this day in the proclamation of your word. We ask mercifully that you would give this to us in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. One of the most interesting things about this portion of the passage is there at the end where you see Stephen with a face of an angel. It invokes in us um, imagination to try to picture what that would have been like. Um, none of us can probably say with all certainty that we've ever seen an angel in its glory. We may have seen angels unaware. Uh, it says that we entertain angels unaware. And we can imagine through the, the descriptions throughout the scripture that surely uh, gazing upon anything that would have a face um, of that of an angel would have been a glorious sight. And we would likely imagine that it would radiate uh, with some type of glory, uh, uh, some type of light. Um, it, would, uh, it would be potentially even blinding um, and mesmerizing. And it is interesting how they respond to this particular phenomena that occurs at Stephen. And we would think that that would be maybe an explanation point to the signs and wonders that he was doing. But as we will see in uh, the passage for next week, um, their response um, was not welcoming 
even with this display. But it was an example and a proclamation to all others who were there, um, and even those who would oppose at that moment and in time, uh, which would be Paul, um, who was there also in that presence. And you will even see throughout his epistles how he has the words that Stephen spoke resonating in his mind as he thinks about the glory of the gospel. It is interesting how mesmerizing light can be and how it is used today. We have so many things that are lit up. I have, instead of just a piece of paper um, at my podium, I have a glowing iPad, uh, which is very helpful for my vision to be able to see more clearly than what is typically on a paper. Um, but it's interesting. And I, being in a decor and sign installation business, um, I'm always looking at, and, and, and I'm sure Chuck does the same, that how light is used to draw attention. It's something that's done to highlight and to make a point. Uh, Knox and I went to Times Square, and it's overwhelming how much light um, and confusion and craziness there is. It used to be that it was just billboards when I was a child, and now everything is some type of LED lighting and a moving motion. Uh, yesterday, even at the hospital uh, with Amy and Steve, uh, they have this mobile um, x-ray machine that comes in because they don't want to have to carry her down to an x-ray lab. And, and it, it's a neat thing in of itself to have an x-ray, um, but I've been to Brian's office, and I know that you don't need flashy lights to have an x-ray, but the machine has this um, decorative green glowing light that's around the base of it. This, I determined, was surely there just for decoration. It was not there for any kind of functional work. I don't know if you have machines like that. They're just, they're decorative. You know, you got this cool, I don't know, how, how much does a machine like that normally cost, a mobile x-ray machine? <laughs> yeah. So that, I guess maybe it's a, it's a nice selling point to have this glowing green light. And, and I was wondering what Amy was thinking about it as, it came by our bedside, and this arm comes down on top of her and, and uh, shoots this x-ray that we, we can't see. Um, but light draws our attention. And just like I was saying, sometimes light is more of a facade than it is of substance. Um, I am sometimes amazed that with diffusers that sometimes the light is very small and it's been diffused into some kind of a major um, display that with very little effort to it. And it's not as big and as momentous um, that it originally was like. And you see that in toys. Um, we like lighted toys. I just got a bicycle for Joe, and it, it doesn't just get you places. It lights up. But it isn't. The lights don't do anything. It's decorative. But I remember that when I was a kid, and they don't have toys like this anymore, I had this gun, and I had a lot of guns that light lit up, but I had this one gun that I got at um, Barnum Bailey um, Circus, and, and they liked to have them because you could see them out in the audience, but this particular gun had a grinder inside of it. Did any of you all have a gun like this? And when you pressed it, it would spin the grinder and it would spark. Inside, it was a self-contained... Did you have a gun like that, Eric? And it was a cool gun, you know, because you would pull it and it would go... 
and it would kind of look like it was a laser gun of some sort. You know, they don't make things like that. I'm sure probably some kid broke the, the, the glass or the plastic and you know, was setting things on fire with it. But that particular light had power, had a true power. That's probably why they don't make them anymore. Light draws our attention, and it creates a sign and a, and a wonder before us, but some light can be deceptive, and some light can have potency. In this particular passage, we have God is showing off once again, as he does throughout the Gospels and throughout the epistles. He is showing off signs and wonders, and it's for his people and for his enemies to see. And as we look at this passage, we are mesmerized by the true power that is behind the signs and wonders. A lot of people can do signs and wonders. A lot of people can have light. We go even all the way back with the story of Moses. And there were other people who could do magic tricks and do different things. And God is constantly proving that those things alone have no power in itself. But this particular passage, as all of Acts is, is not just a display of the extraordinary power of God in forming his church, but it's a teaching time. It's even structured, I believe, as an outline of the character of the church. And you can see, as you go into the epistles, you can, you can see Paul going back. In remembering this moment and finding different things that are going on here. And as he teaches the church, he's using this particular narrative as a structure for the teaching. And so when we look at this, we should be in awe. We should be amazed at what God was doing in that particular time. And we should learn what is the substance, what is the power that is behind this miraculous display that God is putting before them. First of all, it says here that in Stephen was full of grace and power. And it's interesting with that conjunction. A lot of times, if you don't have the conjunction, you can just see one particular thing. But when you add things or you start listing different attributes, it creates kind of an outline for us to to stop and to think about the combination of these things and how bringing them together have a potency um, on a kind of a minuscule level, thinking about like peanut butter and jelly. It changes the nature of things. We just don't think about it as just peanut butter or jelly. But here we have something far greater than that, this concept of grace and power being working together inside of Stephen as he is displaying before them the power of God. Now, Let's take a moment and and look back and just think about the fact that in the context of this is that Stephen was just most recently in this particular narrative was ordained as a deacon for the purposes of serving those who were in need. If you look at the narrative we just got through, going through in the past week, was that they needed to have people who would have the calling and the work of serving tables to help the widows, to help those in the church that had particular needs. And so they called together a a group of people and established this office of deacon. And here we have one of those deacons that were appointed for this call. And what he is doing is he is preaching. He is proclaiming the gospel in a very extraordinary way. 
in the description that we have of Stephen as he is doing this is that he's full of grace and power. Now, it's a nice decorative word to think of grace in this age. We hear it used all the time, and we think about power in many different ways. But look at how it's coming together here. What does it mean for Stephen to be full of grace? As we think about what everything the scriptures speak about with grace, is that it is a character of the Holy Spirit, it is a character of God, that Stephen himself, that his character, that his nature in this moment, that as he is presenting the gospel before those who are going to be his adversaries and before those who are going to be his murderers, he is full of grace in his presentation before them. He acknowledges the grace that's been given to him, which is exuding and coming out of him in his proclamation of this truth. This is not a moment for Stephen of resentment and anger toward those who have crucified the Lord, but he is at a moment of displaying grace He is practicing that moment where for those who are merciful will receive mercy. He has received mercy and therefore he is being merciful to them. The nature of his office is a benevolent mercy and foremost and for the primary purposes of proclaiming the gospel to the people. This teaches us that the nature of the diaconate ministry is foremost and primarily for this gracious display of God's gospel, but he does it with power. Now, it's interesting to think about. We can think of grace and mercy and meekness in many different ways, but it's an interesting thing to bring that together with the word power, to have grace and power. Speaking earlier about my friend whose grandfather served in the German army in World War II, and I think of how Hitler was, he spoke with tremendous power, but I would say that no one ever said that Hitler would speak with grace. There was all kinds of force and power there. So what kind of power does Stephen have? What is something that could give us insight to this grace and power that is spoken about as a character of Stephen? So it's good for us to know what that is, not just so that we can understand that as we consider the narrative, but so that we could know that if whatever ministry we're in, whether it's in proclamation of the word or whether it's in prayer or whether it's in benevolent ministry, this is clearly something that we should pray for, that God would have us speak to the world with grace and power. Well, like I said, Paul was there and he had written to the Ephesians when he would pray for them. He speaks of, I think, this power. For those of you who are here during the Ephesian study, you may remember this. We do go back to this occasionally. And so it's always good to remember it and to repeat it. In verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 1, it says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus... In your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, 
may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head of over all things the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. What do you think so far that when people are preaching here in Acts, what if you could summarize in one word, what is the one thing that he that they're trying to assure people to believe about Jesus Christ? What can you can you think of a word that would be a consistent word in most all the sermons or at least thematically a particular word that has been repeated time and time again. That without this, we would have no hope. That's a clue for you. Well, definitely forgiveness, but it's associated with this particular point of power. Definitely authority. He's been given authority. Many of the adversaries didn't even believe that this was possible. Resurrection. Resurrection. The power of Jesus Christ's resurrection creates in us a hope. And what Paul is praying for here in Ephesians is that we would have the spirit of wisdom, that we would have this revelation of knowledge, that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then he centers it all in the work of Jesus Christ. The power that is being spoke about here is this assurance and understanding of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of himself. Now, what is going to happen to Stephen very quickly here in the next little next chapter? He will be martyred. This is likely one of the shortest tenures of office of any deacon. Now, that may, there may be others who have been martyred and executed or died through natural causes after being appointed. But Stephen is considered to be one of the, the heroes of the faith that we think of. And we think of him as kind of a chief deacon of the past. And his tenure was possibly only a day or so. I don't even know what the chronological timing is from the moment that he was called and to the time that he was actually preaching here. But it's been a powerful ministry. He had a tremendously powerful ministry and potent ministry that still resonates to us today. And the reason why he went into it with such great confidence and with great grace and mercy is because of his assurance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we 
begin our day or when we are considering any kind of ministry, when we are having conversations, maybe tough conversations with our family, with friends, or maybe with strangers or with coworkers, and we know that we ought to be proclaiming the gospel in some way, how are we motivated? What motivates us to speak boldly? To speak with mercy, but to speak with the boldness of power. What is it that motivates us? Do we have the hope of the resurrection in mind? A lot of us, like me, have guilt. I have some kind of, I need to do this. This is what I'm supposed to do. And I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that if I don't do it, that I'm going to be doing something maybe against God. And if I'm afraid if I do do it, that the, the person may not like what I have to say. I was dealing with that this week, working with some guys that had some pretty rough language, and these were professing Christians, and I was praying, how can I, how can I speak to them in a way that would allow me to maintain my proximity to them and being able to be heard, but at the same time not neglect my responsibility as a brother in Christ? Unfortunately, I wasn't really dwelling upon the fact that there's power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I was taking it just as a general responsibility, but here it says that Stephen, he approached this sermon, one of his first things that he had to do in his office, he approached it full of grace and power. It says that as a qualification for being a deacon is that they must hold the mystery of the faith with clear conscience. 1 Timothy 3.9, to hold this mystery, the mystery of the resurrection, the mystery of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ with a clear conscience. It is maybe seemingly rote to think about it, but that is the centerpiece of what our motivation should be. It is what motivated Stephen knowing he knew better than we know even in our observation of what is going on here that he was putting his life in danger by speaking this grace and speaking of this power before them. But he was doing this because of what God had commanded him. God was appointing him to do great wonders and signs among the peoples, and he was given the calling to give the proclamation of the gospel before those, before those who were the enemy of God at this moment. We know that some of them will believe. Here we have the freedmen, the synagogue, synagogue of the freemen, some other Jews. A lot of them were likely Greek-speaking Jews. They had gathered together, and we know automatically from their response that they had been hearing and already had bought into what had been proclaimed at the time of even Jesus before the cross, that this whole narrative or dialogue about Jesus going around and saying he was going to destroy the temple and he was speaking against Moses, they were imposing that upon the same message in the same way before Stephen. It says that these who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen and the Syrians and the Alexandrians and those from Sicily and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So we ought to highlight those particular things grouped together there again. The wisdom and the spirit. We have the grace and the power. 
the wisdom and the Spirit. And we saw that again when Paul wrote there in Ephesians when he was praying for the church in Ephesus that they would have this kind of knowledge in them, that they would have this kind of faith, that they would be motivated and filled with this kind of power and grace, this kind of wisdom. It says that the spirit of wisdom, and it is capitalized because it has to come from the Holy Spirit. When we pray for one another, when we pray for one another this week, we have a lot of prayer requests, and it seems like lately the, the, the list is getting longer and longer, and, and it, it can be very heavy. I know that as I was receiving multiple prayer requests from different people this week, I, was, I just felt tremendously heavy. I had a conversation with Chuck about just the heaviness of the things that are occurring in different families' lives. And, and he and I both, even Chuck almost, he, he was talking to me and he said, just stop. I remember you saying, just stop talking. He couldn't bear it anymore to hear about the burdens that people have to carry. The only thing that can give us hope as we pray for one another is that we would be reassured of the power of the resurrection. That is why Paul, there in Ephesians, is asking or telling them that this is what I am praying for you, that you would have this hope. And that is what we should be praying for each other. We often pray for one another for healing, for peace, but we must know that we must be assured in every moment to have our hope to be resonating in the spirit of this wisdom, which is of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we may get healing. We may get peace. But we're all still going to die. We are still going to have sin. We're still going to have battles before us. We must have a hope that all of this is for the purposes of of the resurrection and the proclamation of the the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the only thing in this kind of dispute as we are maybe burdened by the lies of Satan, it's the only thing that Satan cannot fight. He is totally disarmed by the resurrection Of Jesus Christ. Whenever that is placed before him, he has nothing he can do. Because he cannot kill, he cannot do further deception. The resurrection has occurred as a reality in the center of the church. It is in the reality in the kingdom of God is the resurrection. It says that those here who have been studied, who have been entrenched in shaping God's religion into a man-made religion and making it an idol for themselves that they were unable to withstand the wisdom and the spirit in which he was speaking. Stephen didn't have years of experience and practice in being in this kind of role. But he was full of grace and power, spirit and the wisdom of the spirit of the wisdom of God. 
we, when we are facing these particular troubles, we must have our mind rooted in the hope of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and that we too will rise like him. It might seem kind of mundaneingly simple that that would be a thing that we would dwell upon and that we would pray for one another on. But it is the centerpiece because if we are consumed with just, Lord, please help these people not be in bondage to this moment, that is not leaving them with anything that will be long-lasting. Now, we should pray for those particular things also. We should pray that the hungry be filled and that the suffering would find comfort and that the sick would find healing and that the oppressed would find relief. But ultimately, we should be full of the grace and power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we have Stephen here, full of the grace and power, doing wonders and signs, pointing back to that grace and power, full of the wisdom and spirit. And we see that those who oppose Stephen, they also have a list of attributes that they rose up to dispute. They were gathered together into a a disagreement with Stephen. And they instigated false witnesses, stirring up and then eventually seizing them and taking out of context and twisting the truth into making rumor. The passage that was read by Chuck earlier in James talking about the power of the tongue and the destruction of the tongue, we see here a very highlighted reason that those who will oppose God, those who will have a hard time with hearing the truth of God, will resort to trying to twist to even pervert, to turn upside down the truth. It is a battle of truth in connection with the battle of being full of grace and mercy, being full of the hope of the resurrection. We must be filled with truth. Right now in our culture today, we are being inundated by constant communication. And we are being inundated by tremendous amount of lies. They even recognize it themselves that right now there's this, whether or not people, you know, it's not a a question of just getting the news of what is the truth. And there's fact checks all the time. Even the liars are coming up with their own system of fact checking so that they can twist the truth and it makes it even more difficult. I think you were even praying today about in the medical community that just the confusion of the proclamations of different things. What is true and what is wrong and what is right and what should I do? And there's confusion and we can know from God's word that that is a sign and a place of spiritual warfare that Satan brings that kind of confusion Before us, can we fight this battle without grace, without the power of the hope of the resurrection, and without being full of truth? Talking to some Christians this week, people who proclaim to be Christians, and time and time again, I'm amazed at some of the most basic things that we hold to as Christians. And I'll say, hey, have you... We were, I was talking about the sword, having the sword of the Spirit. And he was like, what are you talking about? And I said, you know, the Bible, it references you know, the Word of God being like the sword of the Spirit. And he's like, I never heard of that before. And I'm like, have you never heard of that before? How did you not, you know, did you go to church? Have you been taught? And he's like, yes. 
I have. I've been around this all of my life. And you've never heard of anyone referencing this being a sword. And he's like, no, I've never heard that. We are so ill-equipped in this battle. The church is so ill-equipped. We are not in the word. We're not studying the word. And when we're not studying the word, our hope is not truly in Jesus Christ. He continually associates who he is as being the word of God. That in sundry ways in the past, God has spoken to us, but now we have revealed before us Jesus Christ in his word. We will not be filled with the hope and the power of the resurrection if we do not have filled in our hearts and our minds the word of God. When we have the true word of God in our heart, that also cannot be disputed. They can twist it and turn it. We see here that they're twisting the truth. They're actually, te- they're actually twisting Jesus' words even more than Stephen. They've been practicing that. They hear that Stephen is preaching about Jesus and preaching the same thing that Jesus is saying. And so they're just ad- adopting the same argument they had before, which that Jesus is here to twist all of the things that we have been preaching about Moses and about the temple. And in some ways, they're telling the truth. Their particular religion that they have formed out of idolatry, Jesus is speaking against it. But he's not speaking against the true law of God. He's not speaking against the temple of God. He is not speaking against Moses. You see here that they are very much attached to holding on to what they say is from Moses. And they're attached to the law, that they are attached to the temple. But we know that when Jesus came, he said in Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not iota or dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But then here is where the fighting words came in. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That is where the fighting words came in. He was proclaiming before them, you've got it all wrong. You're not holding on to the law. You're not holding on to the prophets. I am here to actually fulfill the very law and the prophecies that have been given to God's people. And then we also see... Concerning the temple in John chapter 2, starting with verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? This is when he cleansed the temple. He was cleaning the temple from their sinful actions by turning the tables of their prophet-making sacrifices. It says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, when therefore he raised from the dead. 
his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They are still arguing over what Jesus said. Jesus never said he would destroy the temple. He was not even speaking about that particular temple, though it is a prophecy of the destruction of the temple, but it is talking about his body, which rose from the dead. And they've already, he's already risen from the dead, and he's already ascended into heaven, and he's already established his temple with his people. And they're still arguing over the twisting of the lie that Satan has given them. That's the interesting thing about the lies of Satan. They do have a lot of consistency. When you look at what goes on today, and even when we lie to one another, you can tend to start seeing characteristics that are consistent with how Satan lies. And you go, oh, that seems very familiar. I believe that that's from hell itself. And here, even though all has been accomplished through the resurrection of Jesus, they're still going back to that particular talking point that they gave before Jesus when before he went to the cross. These are lies. These are the twisting of the truth. This is what they're holding on to. They have shaped so much a whole nother world of religion that they can't even see past the reality of what has literally occurred right before them. They can actually go to people and pull them aside and say, did you see Jesus raised from the dead? And they say, yes. Did you see him ascend into heaven? They can say, yes. But that testimony means nothing to them. They're so blind and hardened to their sin and to their own practice. And they are actually labeling it in a sense, as their Christianity, their religion, their God. This is who God is, very much like those at the base of the mountain when Moses returned. They shaped the golden calf. They didn't say that this was Baal. They said, this is the God who took us and freed us from Pharaoh. They reshaped with their own hands the reality into a lie. It is the consistency of Satan time and time again because they have nothing else. They cannot dispute with the reality. They cannot dispute with the power and the spirit that Stephen was coming from. Stephen wasn't doing anything new other than proclaiming the very truth that Jesus proclaimed. Do we want to have that kind of power? Is that what we would like to see in our particular ministries that is given in this church and given to us individually? We would like to have that type of confidence to stand before those who oppose us. Are we looking for some other way to fight against the lies that we're hearing other than the hope of the resurrection? There are a lot of People battling against the lies of our culture today about all of the sexual identity issues and the type of government that we have with socialism and we have um, people arguing about abortion and we have a lot of people out there that are on the forefronts that have their own news channels they have their own podcast and they're they're trying to combat 
But how many of those people have as the tip of their spear the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That is what Stephen has here as he is proclaiming before the enemies of God. It's not anything of any kind of wisdom of the world. It is the hope of Jesus Christ. And the interesting thing here is as they are reshaped their own thinking, their words into their own thinking and doing what is right in their own eyes, they keep labeling it as Moses. But what happens here at the end? At the end of this chapter, that as they are spewing all of these lies about Stephen, right before he gets ready to kick into the fullness of his sermon, it says, as they were gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. Now, the interesting thing is, where else do you see in the scriptures that kind of description of someone? A, res- a radiant face. With Moses. Who said Moses? <laughs> you see it with Moses. What was Moses doing to have that radiant face? It was the presence of God. He was with God. What were they talking about when he was with God? What was God giving him? The law of God. The very things that these are speaking against Stephen are the things that are resonating inside of Stephen to such a degree that that power is being shown in the radiance of his face. The other time that we may see something like this is in the transfiguration of Jesus Christ when he was showing his glory to the disciples. And who was Jesus with at that moment that was also there at the transfiguration? Moses and Elijah, the wall, and the prophets. And they were amazed to see that. And then there at the end, at the close of that presentation, that sign and that wonder of the glory of Jesus, it says, and then Moses and Elijah were gone and all they could see was Jesus. That the very things that these are arguing with Stephen about, the reason why they could not dispute it is because Stephen was rooted In Jesus, he was rooted in the power of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. He was rooted in the law of God. He was rooted in the prophecies because all of the law of God and all of the prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus. And then that's what he preaches to them. We're going to be going next week or starting next week going through his sermon. And it will almost seem kind of Mundane, it's, it's kind of just a history lesson about what God has been doing throughout. He's going through the Old Testament, flipping through the pages. And he's saying, God did this, God did this, God did this, and this was Jesus. And then they kill him. It's a very simple sermon. He's pointing to all the things that they are supposedly holding to. He's pointing to the law. He's pointing to the prophets. And he's saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. When Moses radiated before the people, he didn't even know it when he first came off the mountain. 
he, had, he, it was, he was just so full of the presence of God, so full of the law of God, they didn't even realize it, and they were amazed. And God was using that light, that radiance, as a sign that there's something very significant before you. And it wasn't just an LED light. It was the power of God resonating out of Moses because he had been with God, and he knew God. This knowledge that Paul talks about is in his word. It's in his law. And he resonated. Brothers and sisters, it's convicting to read this passage. Do people notice in us grace when we speak to them, if we speak to them about the gospel? Do people recognize in us a hope of the power of of God, or are we those who speak much of hopelessness? Is our countenance continually low because of our daily battles, and do we come across as being defeated? Do we come across when we do have some kind of fervency or zeal in us? Is that particular power resentment and bitterness, or even worse, maybe jealousy? Over something. Here, Stephen gives us an outline of how we should present the gospel. We should be full of grace. We should be full of mercy because we have been given mercy. We should be full of the power of resurrection because we should have a hope in it. And are we full of the wisdom? Are we full of the spirit of the wisdom of God by being full of his word? When we encounter people, if we intend to be used for the power of the kingdom, we must pray the prayer that Paul taught us to pray by proclaiming for his people to be full of that hope. Not in anything else. Temporal hopes will pass away. But we must be praying for one another that we will have a true wisdom, a wisdom that is from above. And we see this here in James. It says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic even. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This table here is an assuring table, but it's also a threatening table. Because on this particular table, our idols, if we are his, are being proclaimed as being destroyed. Because Jesus took them to the cross. Here in this moment, what Stephen was proclaiming before them is that your idols, he was telling them, your idols are nothing. Your religion is nothing. 
Your pride is nothing. But we have hope in Jesus Christ. There is nothing more threatening in this age today than someone who is one meek and full of grace, assured in the power of the resurrection, and full of God's word. That is the most threatening person in this world today. But it is also the most assuring and welcoming person for those who are poor in spirit. Let it be our prayer that we could be like Stephen. That we wouldn't be worried that we wouldn't be around in a couple more chapters. But that we would be willing to be like Christ and be threatening in the most right way. But to be full of welcoming grace like this table We can be amongst the presence of the Lord, but when we go, we must recognize that our idols are no longer and are full of nothing. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for destroying our idols, destroying our works made with our own hands that we bow down to, that we can come to you with the hope that we Um, before you are cleansed of these things and are being cleansed of them now, even in the proclamation of your word. Cleanse us, destroy everything that is in your temple that does not belong there. We are your people. We are your children. Cleanse it out. Destroy those things and fill us up by the spirit of wisdom, by the spirit of grace, by the spirit of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We beg of you that you would do these things by the power of your son's name. Amen. Let us stand and let us thank God on how he sustains us in all things and is king over all things.